0: You are listening to a podcast from The National.
1: Hello, I'm from Eritrea. I'm sending this message from the war zone, Tripoli, Abu Salim. We are asking for the world to help us and make mercy for us. This is
2: a desperate call for help from an Eritrean refugee, sent to the phone of a reporter.
1: There are children, too many pregnant women, and too many young boys and underage boys. So the world should mercy for us, at least for the children, you should make us out of from Libya. Please, 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 the world, please, I'm asking
3: again and again, help us.
2: In a report for The National earlier this week, Sally Hayden wrote of the plight of hundreds of African refugees in Libya who are locked in detention centres, while outside, rival militias vie for control of Tripoli. We talked to Sally Hayden about the story, and later in this episode, we'll also discuss Iraq. Where this week, the Kurdistan region held its first parliamentary election since 2013. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Sofia Barbarani. Hundreds of African refugees in Libya are caught in the crossfire of rival militias vying for control of Tripoli. Men, women and children who sought new beginnings across the Mediterranean became victims of the European Union's ruthless migration policy. In an attempt to lessen the number of arrivals, the EU in February 2017 began funding the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept and return people trying to make the crossing. Once returned to Libya, many are locked in detention centres close to the front lines. The danger of the war raging outside is exacerbated by what is happening inside. Accounts of rape, forced labor, torture and extortion are common. Last month, a UN brokered accord for a ceasefire between Libyan militias lasted only a few days. By mid-September, the fighting had reached its worst level in years, and migrants and refugees were caught in the midst of it. As the EU washes its hands of their plight, key aid agencies like the UNHCR evacuate staff, and the fighting continues, refugees and migrants in Libya are more vulnerable than ever. The National's Campbell McDermott spoke with freelance journalist Sally Hayden, who has direct contact with some of the men and women trapped in these prisons. Most say they feel completely abandoned by the world and are just waiting to die.
0: So, we're here today with Sally Hayden. Um, she's an Irish freelance journalist covering the migration beat uh, based out of London. She's joining us today from New York. And this week, you reported a really harrowing story for us about um, migrants in, in Tripoli, in Libya, being detained in, in really horrific conditions as, as fighting breaks out again in, in the city. Could, could you give us a little um, bit of an overview of, of that story?
3: This story has kind of come to me a bit out of nowhere. Um, It was on August 26th that I got the first message from these refugees who were trapped in Libyan detention centres. And essentially what had happened was uh, they were all returned to Libya after trying to get to Italy, trying to escape essentially, and were turned back by the EU-backed Libyan Coast Guard, who brings them to Libya and and they get locked in detention centers indefinitely. So they had been locked in these detention centers for months, and then fighting broke out in Tripoli, and the guards that were guarding them just abandoned them and left them without food, without water, and they could see kind of, they described like smoking buildings around them to me, and were just freaking out and... Um, contacted me to try figure out what they should do and try and get people aware of the situation. Then the fighting, I mean, there was a ceasefire declared last Tuesday, and it it remains to be seen whether that's going to hold or not. But they've now survived a month of of war, essentially, like the worst conflict that Tripoli's seen in years.
0: This story had a really big impact with our readers. It was um, shared really widely, and and people were commenting on it. And um, I think part of the reason why that was is that other than that's it's a really shocking situation, is that you've managed to report on a really difficult to access story that not many other people are covering. Could you tell me a little bit about how you managed to report this story? I mean, it's really interesting to me that you've managed to cultivate these sources who are in a, in a jail in, in Libya and you've stayed in touch with them over a long period of time.
3: I just kind of got a message out of nowhere one Sunday afternoon saying, we're in a in a prison. They call it a prison, but it's a detention center in Tripoli. I am the mother of twins. They are very in bad conditions. The world shall make mercy for us. We need, please, we need freedom. We need to get out from the world. We need to get out of Libya. Lib- Libya, please, please help, help. And for me, I I didn't believe it was real, you know, so I got them to send me selfies, send me GPS location points, um, you know, talk to me about their backstory. We did phone calls. It took quite a long time and I was trying to check it as well with international organizations. Took quite a while for me to believe that they were who they said they were. And since then, I've just been in daily touch with them for more than a month now. And my number then ended up getting passed around... A lot of other refugees and migrants across libya so i've got i'd say at this stage about 20 who are sending me relatively regular messages
0: so as how is it that they're in detention and, and they have a phone and also how, how did they get your number and get in touch with you
3: i mean yeah everyone asked this question about the phone the thing for them is that they actually didn't used to have a phone when they tried to get or when the first group anyway tried to get to see the smugglers give them a phone so that they can contact the libyan um or the sorry the italian coast guard and they managed to hang on to that phone and like they'll describe the phone as their lifeline without the phone nobody could, knows what's happening you know they couldn't tell anybody about this situation so it's really really being guarded kind of with their life Um, And there have been a few occasions when they're worried that people are going to take it off them. But so far, so good. And sorry, how they got my number. Uh, I reported a lot in Sudan. So kind of earlier in the trail um, where particularly Eritrean refugees end up. And one of their brothers knew my reporting on Sudan and found my number online and sent it on to them.
0: And, and one thing you sort of alluded to earlier, you mentioned that the Italian Coast Guard was sort of um, supporting li- Libya in, in sending migrants back. So could you explain a little bit more about how European, European migration policy is contributing to the situation that these migrants find themselves in now?
3: Yeah, sure. So since uh, February 2017, the first Italy did a deal with um, Libya, with the Libyan Coast Guard, so they support them. And what they say is that they're rescuing people, you know, who try and cross the Mediterranean, but essentially it's also interceptions. So they're making sure that they're not going to cross. Yeah, the Libyan Coast Guard, like some of them describe, they'll call the Italian Coast Guards, like Italian boats will arrive, but they won't rescue anyone, they won't touch them, and they'll just wait for the Libyan Coast Guard to get there to bring them back. So... Um, so it is kind of a, a situation where EU policy now is just returning people to Libya.
0: And what role are the UN agencies playing in Libya? I mean, they obviously attract a lot of the funding for providing support in, in Libya. So, yeah, what, what are they doing? How, how did um, spokespeople from, from those agencies, you know, respond to, to you when you were coming at them with um questions for this reporting?
3: Yeah, I mean I think that the so UNHCR essentially is supposed to be registering and and be taking care of anyone who qualifies as a person of concern coming from seven particular um countries that include Eritrea, Somalia, uh Sudan like Darfur in Sudan and a few others.
0: That's the and, UN refugee um, agency.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they're so for people who can't go home, they're supposed to be, you know, like somewhat responsible for them and trying to figure out a solution for them. And then for those who can go home, it's the IOM, uh, the International Organization for Migration, who will return them to their home countries. And yeah, I guess what's happened is that particularly UNHCR, it seems like a lot of the migrants and refugees in detention weren't registered before this happened. Like I've got um, figures that show that up to three quarters in some places were never registered. And so now that fighting has broken out, those organizations have very strict security policies for their own staff. So they've evacuated a lot of people, which essentially leaves the refugees, you know, stuck in detention centers with very little hope and recourse. But I, I think now that there's a ceasefire, hopefully they're going to come back again. But it remains to be seen. Um, it's worth saying as well that UNHCR did update their policy on returns so um, they've now said that Libya is not a safe country to return people to and, and for me it was kind of like nice to see that they referenced my reporting in one part of that so so I guess you know it's, it's good to, that people are listening but it's hard to know what to do.
2: Meanwhile, in a region of Iraq that decades ago witnessed its own mass exodus of civilians, people took to the polling stations on Sunday for the Kurdistan region's first parliamentary election since 2013. But the attempt to shake up a flagging political scene has been mired in accusations of fraud, violence and a decades-old rift between politicians. Namely, the Kurdistan Democratic Party and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. A year on from a failed attempt at independence, voters expressed a sense of disillusion in the region's political elite. The National's foreign reporter, Mina Al joined us to discuss the possible outcomes of the elections. Mina, thanks for joining us on the show
1: today. Thank you for having me.
2: The turnout on Sunday was lower than what we saw during the Kurdish independence referendum a year ago, with many voters expressing a lot of apathy. Why do you think that this is?
1: So in comparison to last year's um, referendum vote, I spoke to Kurdish citizens that were on the ground on Sunday and they told me that they're not as enthusiastic and they feel disheartened. They feel that this election is not going to make any difference to the economic crisis that, that the region is facing. Um, people are suffering from unemployment. Um, there's a lack of public services in the region as well. I mean, I really don't blame them for feeling this way. The independence bid deepened um it deepened public despair and it also deepened the divide between the Kurdish parties in the region the vote was held in defiance to the international community so the kurdistan region had calls from the us from europe even from the middle east to sort of t- to stop uh, to halt uh, their their bid for independence and It sparked, it mostly sparked anger and rejection from Baghdad's central government. And in response, Baghdad imposed economic sanctions uh, on the northern region and it sent federal troops to push Kurdish forces out of oil fields that are vital for Kurdistan's economy. As a result, it shrunk this year's voter turnout.
2: So a KDP spokesman on Monday told you his party was leading with 42 seats versus the PUK's 20 seats. Is there any chance at all that the KDP might lose votes? And if so, who is likely to win the most seats?
1: Well, Sophia, the KDP, the Kurdish Democratic Party, they've ruled the Kurdistan region for decades now, since 2003 their rival, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, the PUK. So these two parties have been dominant in, in the Kurdish region. But the results of these elections, I predict that they're not going to change um, the the political dimensions of the region. Only because, in my view, the KDP leader, uh, and who was the former um, president of the KRG, Mr. Udbarazani, he was the man that sort of like pushed uh, the Kurdish independence bid. A lot of people that came out last year for the vote were saying, You know, we owe this to Masoud Barazani. You know, he's finally made our dreams come true.
2: But people still trust him as much as they did a year ago. It doesn't seem so.
1: Yeah, but I still think that he does have some popularity. I think some of them feel disheartened because of the results of the election. But at the same time, the Kurds have been sort of bidding for independence for decades now. So this was a sense of hope that they could actually get that. And
2: you also reported recently that the spokesman for the P.U.K., uh, said that his party would reject the election outcome due to what he said was alleged fraud. What's likely to happen to the election process if they refuse to accept the results?
1: Shortly after the polls closed on Sunday night, the P.U.K. said that it might not recognize the results. Um, I mean, in a statement, this, the party said its decision um, to reject the results in several provinces, such as Slemania, Uh, was based on what it described as violations, um, electoral fraud. Um, The statement was later withdrawn, and with some officials in the party, they were saying, uh, including the Deputy Prime Minister Qobar Talabani, he claimed that it was too early to judge the results. And this could be seen as, as a strategic move to block the KDP from gaining Seats um, in parliament, but I think um, it's too early to say whether there's going to be a rerun of the elections or or it's going to be cancelled. And also, just one more point: it's not really up to the PUK or the KDP to decide; it's down to the Kurdish Independent uh, Electoral and Referendum Commission. Right. And you mentioned Suleimania,
2: which is knowing it's 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 known to be a PUK
1: stronghold, right? Yes. And the PUK has pushed for a recount there as well is that right? The PUK has said that there's been a lot of um, fraud complaints in Slemania so they've what they've done now they've they've put their complaints forward to the um, the independent commission in which is going to review that and when the final results are going to be announced in the coming days then the commission will look over and see what's best to do. We
2: mentioned or you mentioned the split between the these two major parties, which have essentially been ruling Kurdistan for decades now, um, the KDP and the PUK. It seems like it has, the split has worsened over the past year since the referendum, everything that that there's been a lot of turmoil socially and also politically between these two parties. And the rift has bled into Baghdad politics too, as now uh, they struggle to nominate a new president. So now we're talking Baghdad. We're not talking Kurdistan. The Iraqi president needs to be elected and people are waiting on this. Um, could you just briefly explain to us why does the Iraqi president have to be Kurdish and what have been the major issues
1: in electing him? So an informal power sharing agreement claims that senior governmental roles in Baghdad are are divided between the predominant ethno-sectarian groups in the country meaning that the prime minister has to be a Shiite Arab the the parliamentary speaker has to be a Sunni and the president is a Kurd. The, The Kurdistan's dominant parties have not been able to agree on the candidate that they want to nominate for the presidency post. And this threatens their usually united front in Baghdad. Now the KDP is nominated Fuad Hussein and the PUK is nominated Barham Saleh. And according to a tacit agreement between the two parties, the PUK would hold the, the federal presidency, which would rule the whole of Iraq. And the KDP would hold the post of presidency in the Iraqi Kurdistan region. Independence
2: from Iraq has always been top of the agenda for the Kurds. Their big dream, the independent Kurdistan, or some even say the greater Kurdistan that reaches from Syria to Iraq to Iran to Turkey. But with an uncertain political scene and this ongoing economic crisis and Baghdad's refusal to let them go, what are likely to be the consequences for the Kurds if they continue to push for this
1: independence? I think the Kurds have put the issue of independence on the side for now. They've lost too much after the referendum was carried out, just like you said. The Kurds have been calling for independence for decades now, but I think they're in a very critical position. They want to have a strong government in the KRG, and I think that's what they're going to be focusing on for now. And once things are stable in Erbil, the capital of the Kurdish region, I think that's when they're going to start pushing for independence again. So can
2: a successful parliamentary election bring some much-needed stability for the Kurds of Iraq? Or are there just too many other issues that they still need to deal with?
1: I've been speaking to, uh, during my reporting for the um, elections, I've been re- speaking to many Kurdish officials from the KDP and the PUK. And they both have been sort of, let's say, hopeful. Of of election. elections, and um, although the four, the past four years have been ve- very challenging for the KRG, the Kurdistan Regional Government, the election is seen as an opportunity for voters to create positive changes in the region. I mean, they say to me that people have finally they get their chance to cast their votes and elect the party that they believe in, and the party that they believe would bring about good government, good governance, that the region truly deserves and is in need of. Again, it comes down to having a good, stable government in Erbil that will provide services to the public and that will carry out their hopes for independence in the future.
2: Thanks to Mina Al-Drubi for her insights on the elections in Iraq. And thanks to Sally Hayden for speaking with Campbell McDermott. Thanks also to Kevin Jeffers for producing this episode. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines for free to receive new episodes each week. Find us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting app, where you can also find our other shows, such as Business Extra and The Cricket Pod. The National is online at thenational.ae and on Twitter at The National UAE. I've been your host, Sofia Barbarani. Join us again next week.